Well, as you know, next Sunday is Christmas, of course, and so, or Christmas Eve. And so I know that some of you, I'm confident, will be traveling uh, next Sunday. It's a, it's a big travel time, and you'll be away with family. So I want to tell you today, if I don't get to see you next Sunday, Merry Christmas. I, and from Tracy and, and me, uh, we hope that you have a really wonderful Christmas. For those of you who will be here next Sunday, and I hope that's going to be most of you, but for those of you who will be here, we'll be on a regular schedule next Sunday morning since Christmas Eve is on Sunday. Uh, we're just going to go with our regular schedule on all of our campuses. And so just come at your normal time. We're excited to be celebrating communion together next week. And so we look forward to that, and I hope you'll plan to uh, be a part of that and to be prepared for it. Um, last Sunday, we began thinking together about um, Christmas at Brookstone, and really just focusing for a few weeks, not really a series so much, but really just taking a few weeks to focus our attention on the nativity and the, and the truths of the incarnation. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but last week I asked you a question, said, are you ready? Are you ready for Christmas? And of course, I didn't mean, are you, are you ready by buying all your gifts or hanging all your decorations? But is your heart ready for Christmas? And we were thinking together last week about the message of John the Baptist. And John told us how to prepare to receive Christ. You remember two things we learned. Number one, he said, if you want to be ready for Christmas or ready to receive Christ, uh, you need to turn from your sin. That was number one, that we need to deal with the reality of our sin. And that's a, the Bible word for that is repentance, that we turn from our sin and we turn to Christ in faith. And I'm so happy to tell you, by the way, that last Sunday, seven people in our services did that very thing. They turned from their sin and they gave their lives to Jesus and were born again. And then I'm also excited to tell you that on Wednesday night when we gathered here for our night of worship, six more people prayed to receive Jesus. There have been 13 people saved at Brookstone since last Sunday morning. That's an awesome, awesome thing. Yeah, we ought to clap about that. But that's the way we get ready, right? That's the way we prepare to receive uh, Christ or we prepare for Christmas. That is, that we turn from our sin. The second thing that we talked about last week, again, from the lips of John the Baptist is that we should receive Jesus as our king. This is his words, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. So we turn from our sin, we make Jesus Lord, we make him king and then our hearts are prepared. Well today we are going to go to Luke chapter number one. Last week we were in Matthew chapter one and we're thinking today about this reality of arriving in Nazareth. I said it to you last week, every Christmas sermon, every Christmas carol, every Christmas play is intended to transport us in our minds and our hearts to Nazareth, where we think about the nativity and, and uh, the uh, conception of Christ and the birth of Jesus ultimately in Bethlehem. So today we're going to go there to Nazareth in Luke chapter number 1. I want you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse number 26, Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. The Bible says, in, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail! Thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. 
When she saw him, she was troubled, she was afraid, and she wondered in her mind what this might mean, what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And then Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing that I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your cousin Elizabeth, she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. And so the angel departed from her. Now, most of you will know that this portion of Luke chapter number one is commonly called the Annunciation. This is the moment of the announcement or the Annunciation, the the moment when Gabriel who is the angel of the Lord. By the way, when we, when we read about Gabriel in the Bible, we're talking about the angel of the Lord. This is a mighty, powerful angel. The Bible tells us in the book of Daniel that Gabriel does battle with demonic spirits. Uh, Gabriel himself says in Matthew chapter number one that he stands in the presence of God that he goes forth into the world executing the will of God and This is a mighty angel, and he shows up in this tiny little backwater village of Nazareth uh, in the presence of this young, timid, teenage girl, and he announces to her that she will be the one to deliver the Messiah. What an epic moment of epic moments, right? Gabriel shows up to make this announcement. And we don't know exactly where the announcement occurred. We do know that it was in Nazareth. Verse 26 tells us that. He was sent from heaven uh, into Nazareth. But we don't know exactly where in Nazareth this happened. If you go to Nazareth today, there are two locations that you can visit which are the traditional sites of the likely place of the Annunciation. Uh, One of those is called the Church of the Annunciation. This is a beautiful Catholic church which has been built over the ruins of a first century home in that village. We don't know that it was the home of Mary or her parents. Might have been. In all likelihood, it wasn't. I mean, there were more than just one family that lived there, uh, several hundred that lived there, no doubt. But this, the, the ruins of this home have been uncovered and a church has been built over it and they call it the Church of the Annunciation and say perhaps this is the place where Gabriel came to speak to Mary. We don't really know. There's another location which has a little more possibility of being the authentic place and that is called the, place of, or the Church of Mary's Well. Now, this is a Greek Orthodox church, a much smaller church. 
But that church is built over the only water source in Nazareth uh, during the days uh, of Christ, during the first century. And so it's built over the spring of Nazareth. And so we know that Mary would have been there at that spring, no question. She would have been there probably every day or most every day of her life. She would have gone there with her mother or sisters perhaps to gather water. And, uh, and, and this church was built in the speculation that perhaps it was at the well when she was coming to gather water that Gabriel met with her. The truth is we don't know. We don't know if it was at either one of those locations or somewhere completely different. It doesn't really matter. But here's what we do know, that on this day, Gabriel intercepts the life of Mary and gives her the news that will change her life and in fact change the world forever. You can imagine how Mary must have been startled and frightened. In fact, verse number 28 and 29 tell us that she is troubled. When he arrives and begins to speak to her, she begins to tremble and she's wondering what could this mean? What is this all about? And then he gives her the news. The news comes in verse number 31. And you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest. The Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father David and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And verse number 35 tells us that he will be called the son of God. Imagine this moment when Mary hears the word, Hail Mary, you are highly favored. God has placed his favor, his grace over your life. The word favored here is the Greek word charis, and it means grace. You have been given much grace. That grace means that the Lord is with you, and it means that you have been blessed above every woman on the face of the earth. Blessed are you among women. She had been given such amazing grace to be the one to carry the Christ child. Now, let me ask you a question real quick, a little Bible quiz question. What did Mary do in order to receive such grace? Do you know the answer? How was it that Mary had earned the grace that God gave her to be able to carry this uh, child? Now, here's the answer. I'll give you the answer. The answer is nothing at all. She did nothing to earn his grace. God simply in his mercy, chose her to be the one that would carry the Christ child. And in the same way, if you have experienced the grace of salvation, do you know what you did to earn it? Here's what you did. Absolutely nothing. It was the grace of God and his mercy alone that invited you into his favor. Amen? She received this blessing, this grace from God. And Gabriel said to her, now Mary, here's what's going to happen. You are going to conceive a child. You're going to carry this child in your womb. You will deliver this son. And when you do, when it's time to name him, call his name Jesus. And then he begins to describe the son. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest the Son of God. 
He will rule over the house of Israel, the house of Jacob. He will sit upon the throne of his father, David. He will rule over the kingdom of God forever and forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's a lot of information, right? A boy will be conceived, will be born. He will be called the son of God, or he will be the son of God. And he will rule over the house of Israel forever and forever. And notice that Mary, I've told you this before, Mary doesn't say, what? A king? What? God is coming to be our king and deliver us? What do you mean? She didn't ask those questions. She knew that the Messiah had been promised, that the king would one day come. She was looking for the king like every other Jew of her day was looking for the king, the Messiah, and hoping that he would come. Her question was not, what are you talking about? Her question is, how can this be? In fact, look at it very plainly. She asks the question uh, in verse number, what, 35, 36, no, 35, the angel, nope, verse 34, there it is. Nope, verse number 33, he shall reign, the angel, at verse 34, there's the question. She said, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Now, this is the question of impossibilities. This is the question of, I'm a virgin. Virgins can't have babies, and so how shall this be? And the answer of Gabriel comes in verse number 35 with these words, the Holy Spirit. Verse number 37, for nothing shall be impossible with God. In the question of impossibility, the answer was the Holy Spirit can do it because nothing is impossible for God. Every campus, if y'all are listening, shout amen. You may be facing an impossible situation right now. You may have a burden that is absolutely overwhelming to you. You may be praying for a person to come to Christ and you think it's never going to happen. And you've talked to them until you're blue in the face. And you're hoping and wishing and praying and they just have no interest. Or maybe you're praying for someone to come back to Christ and they seem to be completely disinterested in that. Or maybe you're facing a barrier in your life right now which seems insurmountable. Let me give you the answer to how those things can be resolved. You ready? The Holy Spirit can do it because nothing is impossible with God. Praise the Lord. This is his answer. How shall this be seen? I know not a man. Nothing is impossible with God. The Holy Spirit can do it. And then he tells her how it's going to happen. Look at verse number 35. The angel answered and said unto her, number one, write this down, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. That's answer number one. How shall this be? The Holy Spirit shall come upon you. Now when the, when the Bible says the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the word means to be present with you. It means that he will be active with you. It's the idea of he will empower what you are powerless to do. I believe that you pray this way before you come to church. Many of you do. You say, Holy Spirit, come and be present as we gather in church today. You pray for the Spirit to be present here. Our pastors do this every Sunday when we huddle up at 7 in the morning on all of our campuses. We huddle up and we pray, 
Holy Spirit, be present with us today. Well, do we really need to pray that? Because he's here, right? I mean, he's everywhere. And we're here. And he's within us. And so he's present with us. So when we say be present, are we praying something that's redundant? We don't really need to ask him to be present. No, what we mean is be present in act, and active. Be present in your working. Work powerfully among us. That's what the angel is saying to Mary. The Holy Spirit will be present, empowering your virgin womb to conceive. What could otherwise never happen will happen because of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he means. There's another place where the New Testament, where the book of Luke, in fact, tells us about this work of the Holy Spirit coming upon us. Turn one page. Go to Luke chapter 3. You'll see there the baptism of Jesus. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. It says, Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also being baptized. He was praying, and the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily shape like a dove, look, upon him. Luke 3.22 says the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, empowering him for his earthly ministry. This marks the beginning of his earthly ministry. And in the same way that Gabriel promised the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary, ultimately the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus to fill him for his work. And you'll notice, by the way, that when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus in Luke chapter number 3, it was in a visible form, right? Verse 22 says, the Holy Spirit came in a bodily shape like a dove. You could see it descending. Now there's one other place that I'm aware of in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit came upon somebody and his coming upon them was visible. Do you know where that was? Acts chapter number two, the day of Pentecost, right? So the Holy Spirit came and filled the church on the day of Pentecost. And as the Spirit descended, he came like cloven tongues of fire. You could see it. It's also intimated in Acts chapter 11 that that happened again in Caesarea in the family of Cornelius, the first Gentile converts, when uh, Peter preached to them. And, uh, and as Peter preached, the Holy Spirit fell upon them uh, as it did on the day of Pentecost. So here's my point. In Luke chapter 1, Gabriel says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and empower what would otherwise be impossible. In Luke chapter 3, that coming of the Holy Spirit was visible. In Acts chapter 2, that coming of the Holy Spirit was visible. In Acts chapter 11, that coming of the Holy Spirit was apparently visible. Now, you say, Pastor, why are you making such a big deal of that? Well, go back to Luke 1. Let me show you where I'm going with that. Look at chapter number 1 of Luke. And again, verse number 35. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest, or the power of God, shall overshadow thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow you. Now, the word overshadow means to have a shade cast upon you. You know what that's like. You've been standing out in your yard or somewhere in the hot summer sun, beads of sweat 
forming on your brow. It's just hot under the sun. And a dark rain cloud will come over and block between you and the sun. And the shade of that cloud will cast over you. And everything changes, doesn't it? The temperature drops. The, the smell of the air changes. The light changes. Everything changes when you are overshadowed. There's another place in Luke where this happened. And I don't pretend to know exactly what it looked like in Mary's life when the power of the highest overshadowed her as the Holy Spirit came upon her. But there's another place where Luke describes the power of God overshadowing somebody. Turn with me to Luke chapter number 9, if you will. Just a few pages. Luke chapter 9. Look with me in verse number 34 where you're going to find the, the transfiguration. You know what the transfiguration is, don't you? If y'all are doing okay, shout amen. You, you know the transfiguration. This is where Jesus is on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And they go to sleep. They fall asleep. And when they wake up, they see Jesus in his glory. Uh, and He's transfigured before them. And there's talking to him, Moses and Elijah. And you remember what Peter said? Peter said, "Woo, it's good to be here. Let's build three tabernacles. One for Jesus, one for Moses and Elijah. And God spoke from heaven and said, Peter, shut up. Bad idea. Moses and Elijah don't get tabernacles. This is my son, Jesus. We worship him. But look what happens in Luke chapter number 9, verse number 34. And while he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. Same word. It is the cloud, I believe, of God's glory. Not a rain cloud, but a cloud of God's presence. It overshadowed them and they feared as they entered into the cloud. Now, I don't know what happened in Luke chapter 1 with Mary, but I know that on the Mount of Transfiguration, according to Luke 9.34, that these three men, Peter, James, and John, were enveloped in a cloud. And I know that Exodus chapter 40 speaks about the glory of God overshadowing and filling the tabernacle, and it was in the form of a cloud. And I know that 1 Kings chapter 8 talks about the dedication of Solomon's temple, and the glory of God came into the temple, and it was filled with a cloud, and that the priests couldn't even see one another. They couldn't do their work. They couldn't move about because the cloud completely enveloped them. I don't know exactly how this happened, but Mary says, how shall this be? How can I give birth to the Son of God who will reign over Israel? I'm a virgin. And the angel Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of God will overshadow you. And if I base my opinion on Luke chapter number 3 and on Luke chapter number 9 and on Exodus chapter 40 and on 1 Kings chapter 8 and other passages, I'm convinced there was a moment when the glory of God, the cloud, came and enveloped Mary. And Mary says in verse number 38, Behold, I am the handmaid, the servant of the Lord. Be it unto me according to your word. And Gabriel leaves her. And I don't know when, and I don't know exactly how, but in some way, God in his spirit came And surrounded her. And when he left. In her womb. The divine God of eternity had been conceived. 
That's the miracle of miracles. And I want you ladies to think for a moment, if you've carried a child, I want you to think for a moment how intimidating this would have been to a young teenage girl to think of this moment when she would conceive the Son of God. Well, the angel leaves. The, the, the cloud envelops her. She conceives this child, and verse number 39 tells us what she does next. Verse 39 says, Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah, and she entered into the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth, whom you will remember from last week are the parents of John the Baptist. And when she enters into that home, immediately John the Baptist, still in utero, six months, Elizabeth is pregnant with John. He leaps in her belly. She's filled with the Holy Spirit, and she begins to speak words of affirmation uh, over uh, what is happening in Mary's life. Now, I have to tell you, I've always wondered about this journey that Mary made immediately after conceiving Christ. I don't know if you think about Scripture like this, but, but I do. When I, when I read something like this, I always think, like, like how'd she get there? Verse number 39 says that she went to Judah, to a city of Judah, into the hill country of Judah. We know exactly where that is. We know exactly where Zacharias and Elizabeth live, but we know where the hill country of Judah is. It's right outside of Jerusalem. This would have been a journey of four or five, maybe six days walking. It would have been from the mountains of the Galilee up into the mountains of Judah, the Judean hills. And the hillside country around Jerusalem, the traditional home of Zacharias and Elizabeth is in a place called Ein Kerem, and that's on the steep, steep slopes that dive into the valleys around Jerusalem. It would have been a long and difficult journey for her to make. She's a teenage girl. She didn't go by herself. Who went with her? Did her mother go with her? Did her father go with her? Did, did she go to her parents and say, I want to go see Elizabeth Now! Why do you want to go see Elizabeth? I have to go now. Let's go. I don't know. But somebody took her and they made their way to Elizabeth and Zechariah's house. And I don't know. I wonder if she doubted along the way. I mean, I do. I wonder if, if she got two or three, four, five days past this event with the angel and if she began to hold her belly and think, was that real? Am I really carrying the Christ child? Did I just dream all of that? I don't know if she doubted, but if she did, the moment she walked into Zechariah's house and Elizabeth began to speak prophetically over her, all doubts were erased because Elizabeth immediately began to affirm all that had happened. No way Elizabeth could have known that except the Holy Spirit had told her that. And so she begins to affirm all that has happened in Mary's Life. And so Mary now with Elizabeth, and she's there, the Bible says, for three months, and then she returns. But she responds to Elizabeth's affirmations with great praise. And this is where I want to wrap up today. So go to verse number 46, and let's read this. You follow along. These are Mary's words after arriving in the home of Zacharias and Elizabeth. She says in verse 46, Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. 
For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done for me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He has showed strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich has he sent away empty. He is helping his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And then verse number 56 says, And so Mary abode with Elizabeth for about three months and then she returned to her own House, And we would presume that it is at that point in verse 56 where she tells Joseph that she is carrying the Christ child. And Matthew chapter number one, which we read last week, occurs. A couple of things about Mary's praise in these verses that I want you to note real quickly. First of all, write them down, that when you read Mary's praise, beginning in verse number 46, it is her praise to celebrate God's faithfulness. Her praise is intended to celebrate the fact that God keeps his promises. Especially beginning in verse number 50, what you discover is that Mary is shouting these words of praise or singing these words of praise to celebrate the fact that God has begun to keep his promises that he has made to Israel throughout the ages. She knows that in the child that she's carrying, God is going to keep his promises. The promises about a Messiah. The promises that he made that one day Israel would be delivered from their enemies. That one day they would be set free to serve him without fear. That one day he would reign, God would reign among them. These are promises they all knew. And she celebrates in these verses the fact that these promises have been made by God in the Old Testament and that he is now beginning to keep those promises. In fact, it's interesting when you read beginning in verse number 50 down through verse number 54, every single statement that she makes in those verses is a direct quote, at least a partial direct quote, from verses in the Old Testament. In fact, let me give them to you. You'll have to write them quick if you're going to get them. But just know this. In verse 50, when she says, And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation, it's a direct quote from Psalm 103, verse number 17. In verse 51, when she says he's showing strength with his arm, he's scattering the proud, she's quoting Psalm 98, verse 1, and Psalm 33, verse 10. In verse number 52, where she talks about his putting down the mighty from their seats and exalting the humble, she's quoting Ezekiel 21 and verse 26. In verse 53, when she talks about his filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich away with nothing, she's quoting Psalm 34 and verse 10. And in verse number 54, when she says he's helping his servant Israel, he's keeping his promises, she's quoting Psalm 98 and verse number 3. Do you know what I know about Mary? She knew her Bible. (laughs) She knew the Word. And when she began to praise God for keeping his promises, she's just repeating what she had been taught her whole life 
through the Old Testament scriptures. That God had promised one day to help Israel by lifting them out of oppression, sending their oppressors away, raising them up, and ruling over them as their king forever. He had promised to do it. And she said, praise God, he's beginning to do it. Now, let me ask you this question. Have those promises been fulfilled completely? All these promises to Israel that she's celebrating in these verses, have those promises been kept? Have they been fulfilled right now? We're 2,000 years post Mary's song. Has God kept all of those promises so far? No. No, they're they're not all fulfilled yet. Partially they're, they're beginning to be fulfilled or have been fulfilled, but they're not all fulfilled yet. And if your question is, well, why not? What's taking so long? If, if God has promised to do it and Mary said he's beginning to do it, why is it taking 2,000 years to get it done? That's such a great question. You know the answer? Look around. We're the answer. Because God is bringing to himself a Gentile bride, believers in Jesus out of every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue. And it's his mercy to the Gentiles that has delayed that ultimate kingdom coming in. Praise God for that delay. It has meant our salvation. We've been grafted in by his mercy. But I have to tell you this. I believe that we will see Mary's song sung one day. And I believe one day soon. Because I believe we're seeing the world set up to receive Jesus as the Messiah, to see Jesus, receive Jesus as King. And I believe that very soon Mary's song will be sung on the slopes of Jerusalem, be sung on the hillsides, bouncing off the hills of Zion and off the walls of Jerusalem. We will hear Israel sing verse 50, verse 51, verse 52, verse 53, verse 54, singing this psalm of praise because God keeps his promises. And so Mary says, God is keeping his word and I bless him for his faithfulness. Secondly and finally, Mary's praise is a response to God's personal grace. She praises him for his national grace, his grace to Israel. But she also praises him for his personal grace to her. You know, Mary had, Mary had awakened in Luke chapter one that morning And it was like every other morning, right? I mean, she was an average Jewish girl living in an average Jewish town. She had all the same chores and duties and responsibilities of every other Jewish girl in her community. And she had all the same hopes and dreams as every other Jewish girl in her community. She was engaged to this man, Joseph, who was presumably significantly older than her. And she was confident would be a good husband to her. She had her her life plans mapped out. It was just an average, ordinary girl in an average, ordinary day. And out of nowhere, God intercepted her life and changed it forever. And she praises him for that. Notice her specific praise in verses number 48 and 49. When she says, For he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. See how she praised him? She said, when, when he came to me that morning, I was way down here. I was a servant girl living in a backwater village in a very low estate. I had nothing. But now, because of his grace in my life, he has elevated me. 
And for all generations, everyone will call me blessed. And this is the work of grace. And I want you to write it down. It is that it is always true. It is that grace always elevates the broken. Every single time. Grace always lifts us up. This is what has been true of Jesus as you read in the Gospels. When you read Christ in the Gospels, he's always elevating the broken. The leper whom everyone recoiled from, everyone said, get away, you're unclean. Jesus embraced him and elevated him. The woman taken in adultery and every person was ready to stone her. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And he elevated her. The sick, the demon possessed, even the dead. Grace always elevates. And can I testify this morning? If y'all listening, shout amen. You're looking at a guy that Jesus found in the depths of his sin, in the depths of my rebellion, in the depths of my disregard of God or his righteousness or his will or his way. He came to me and everything in my life since that day has been higher than it was. He has elevated me by his grace. And if you know Jesus, you've been elevated as well. And forever in eternity, we will have been elevated to eternal life by the grace of God. That's what grace does. It always elevates. And I might just say to you that it's always what happens when we extend grace to others as well. So who is it that you need to give grace to this Christmas? Who is it that will be at your Christmas dinner table that you could condemn and you could alienate and you could ignore and you could be unkind to and you could be disrespectful to but what they need is grace or who is it that won't be at your dinner table this Christmas and what they need is grace because you understand that when we offer grace we're doing the opposite of what we could do because we could push down and we could condemn and we could say guilty 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 or we could be more like Jesus amen and we could elevate them by giving them grace. It's what happens. Well, Mary received grace. And so because of this personal grace, then Mary magnified the Lord. I want you to write that down. We're going to wrap it up. Verse number 46 says this. And Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord. And this song, these verses that follow verse number 46, this song this psalm of Mary, this, this um, poem, we call the Magnificat. That's the Latin word for the word magnify. My soul doth magnify the Lord. You know what magnify means. You put something under a magnifying glass, it gets bigger. Well, we magnify the Lord when we praise him. We make him known. We make him larger as we praise him for his grace. I want to encourage you this Christmas to be a person of praise because God keeps his promises and God has given to you elevating grace. And so praise him, magnify him. And then there's one last thing I want to show you. It's found in verse 46 and 47. And Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. I know that Christmas is a difficult season for many people. 
And by that I mean I know that a lot of people find the days around Christmas to be not days of cheer and joy and happiness, but days of discouragement and depression and anxiety. And there are a lot of reasons why that's the case. Maybe you're struggling this this Christmas, and you you need you you would say, Pastor, I'm in a I'm in a place of despair or depression. What do I do? Here's what you do: you magnify the Lord. Because the Bible says, my soul doth magnify the Lord, verse 47, and my spirit is rejoicing. Here's the principle. Praise that magnifies the Lord elevates the soul. So rather than simply saying, I'm just going to try to feel better. I'm going to get up and paint on a smile. I'm going to turn that frown upside down. And I'm going to feel better. Let me give you better advice. Just begin to magnify God for all of his grace in your life. And as you lift the Lord, your soul is tied to him through grace. And as you magnify the Lord, your soul, your spirit will come up with it. And you will find despair and depression loosening their grip because praise that magnifies the Lord will elevate the soul. I want you to know that God has been gracious to you and me. Amen? All of us on every campus, he has given us grace. And our joyful privilege this Christmas is to magnify and to praise his name.